Bill to the 11th chapter of Acts. In just a few moments, we're going to be uh, going into the sermon, and I'll do uh, uh, be referring to several of those verses, starting with verse 19 in Acts chapter 11. <clears throat> to <clears throat> think in terms that we can relate to today, the city of Antioch in the first century was not in the Bible Belt. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of half a million people. It was a very wicked city. It was a place known for gambling, for prostitution, for pagan worship. It was a place that very much needed the gospel. Jesus told his followers that he needed them to be salt and light in the world. And Antioch was a place that desperately needed that salt and light of the gospel. God needed to reach the people in that culture, and the way that he did that was as a result of Christian persecution. They were under threat of their faith, and so they went to Antioch, a place not at all conducive to warmly receiving them, but what is interesting is what they did when they got there. They didn't just throw a pity party. They started a church, and they started spreading the gospel of Jesus. This morning we need to first look at some of the names that those early followers of Jesus came to be known by. Number one in your outlines today, first of all the names. One of the first references to Christ's followers was as disciples. Jesus said in John 13 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, if you will love one another the way I have loved you, and if you will follow and commit yourselves to my teachings, that's what a disciple does, then this is the way that people will know that you are my disciple. They were also called believers. Acts 4.32, referring back to Jerusalem, says all the believers were in one heart and one mind. Later, these believers would then come to be called saints, because of their relationship with Jesus. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. They were also called brothers with each other. In telling a story of what heaven would be like, Jesus told the story of one who was hungry and thirsty and a stranger and who needed clothes. And he said in Matthew 25, verse 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers... You did it for me. Hebrews 13.1 also reminds us, keep on loving each other as brothers. Well, that is where it stopped being nice. The Jews took to calling those followers of Jesus Nazarenes, and it wasn't meant in a nice way. On the night that Jesus was arrested, and taken in by those Roman and Jewish authorities, the disciples fled into the night. And later it was Peter who was identified as a follower of Jesus. You remember the story of the girl in the courtyard, Mark chapter 14, accusing Peter of what? Being with that Nazarene. Later, in the 24th chapter of Acts, the apostle Paul was also accused of it, even though he wasn't from that area geographically. He's described in Acts 24, verse 5, as being a troublemaker 
stirring up riots among Jews all over the world, a ringleader of that Nazarene sect. What started out as being identified with the Holy Son of God and conveying to others what those followers had committed themselves to finally had turned into nothing more than name-calling. And for the people using those names against the followers, they were not nice names. They were meant to be derogatory. It's interesting also that these slurs had a history that even goes a little bit farther back. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he called Andrew and Peter and Philip, and it was Philip who then went out and found Nathanael and told him that they had found the promised one, the long-awaited Messiah, and that it was Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. (laughs) You remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but probably as a toddler, was then taken to Egypt for his safety. And when that danger had passed, his family came back to Israel and they settled in the small town of Nazareth. And he grew up known as the son of Joseph the carpenter. And there was no hiding Nathaniel's surprise years later when John chapter 1, he said, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He wasn't so much being critical of Jesus directly as he was of the area. So maybe in a way, yes, he was putting Jesus down by association just because of where he was from. I had a friend in college who was not in any way, by any stretch of the imagination, proud of his hometown. He hated it. And he couldn't wait to get away from home and go off to college. And in his words, he used to say, it was a nice place to be from. In other words, he was glad to be away from there. Well, in the very same way, Nazareth would have been a nice place to be from. And Nathaniel could say what he did about Nazareth because he knew what he was talking about. Why? Because he was from Nazareth. No doubt, he had experienced some of that same kind of slurring and name-calling. Nazareth had a reputation of being lower class. They were looked down on. They were considered lacking in culture. They didn't talk right. They had a dialect that marked them. They were considered inferior. They were considered irreligious. They had a reputation for immorality. And so when Nathaniel heard that the Messiah was from Nazareth, he was incredulous. Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Nazareth? Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? And so when the Jews, then later the Romans, started referring to those first century believers as Nazarenes, they weren't just referring to a location. It was a derogatory statement. It was referring to them as those whatever. Those so-and-sos from you-know-where. And they weren't trying to be nice. And they weren't trying to hide it. And so finally, we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What a privilege 
they gave us. What a high honor they gave to us. Number two, the title of Christians. Last Sunday morning, we talked about Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John had been arrested for speaking out about Jesus. And when the religious leadership, verse 13, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They thought Jesus was dead and gone. They thought that problem was solved. But what they saw standing before them in the Sanhedrin that day was not just a couple of fishermen who got a little bit overexcited about something. They were seeing Jesus all over again. The name Christian has been defined in a number of ways. Follower of Christ, imitator of Christ. That I-A-N at the end of the word Christ simply means little Christ. To be associated with with Christ. That wonderful, matchless, beautiful name that is above every name. Such a privilege. The question for us is, are we worthy of being referred to by that name? What was it that earned those first century believers that privilege? More important, do you and I have the right to call ourselves Christian. Have we earned it? I'm not in any way talking about earning our salvation. We know better. We know that our salvation is a gift of God's grace. We will never, can never, will not ever be able to earn it in any way. So let me ask my question in a different way. After obtaining our salvation as a gift of God's grace, are you displaying enough of a likeness to be recognized as a little Christ. Here's my sermon in six words. Do people see Jesus in you? Those early followers, those believers, those Nazarenes, they were seen as little Christs. How did they do it? Number three in your outlines, fill in the blank. They imitated Jesus. That's all. They imitated Jesus. Jesus, verse 20 in our passage today, says that they went out in new directions. They were not afraid to be bold, to do what was out of the norm, out of their comfort zone, even take some risks. Because you see, up to this point, they were a part of that Jews-only mentality. The apostle Peter was guilty of that early in his ministry as well. God had to deal with that in his life. You back up to verse 19, in Acts chapter 11 today, and it says they went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and it also says they were telling the message only to the Jews. But then look at verse 20. They began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It wasn't just preaching the way we think of it and associate with it today. It was telling anyone who would listen and being creative when they needed to. It was taking some risks when they needed to. It was being bold when they needed to. It was telling the good news. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And they were imitating Jesus. Jesus took risks. 
He went beyond the norm. He went beyond what was expected, even beyond what the church expected. He broke barriers. And he was bold in following what God placed before him, even before the cross. In the fourth chapter of John, Jesus went out of his way and broke through the bias traditions of his day. He went straight to someone who had four strikes against her, the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She had a questionable background and even a questionable current living status as well. And Jesus went to her to talk about spiritual matters. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a self-proclaimed enemy of Jesus, came to him under darkness of, of uh, the cover of darkness one night. It could have been dangerous. could have been a trap. And Jesus talked to him about his soul. Jesus took the time to reach out to the poor, the sick, the ones cast aside by society and by their religion. John chapter 9 talks about how the church excommunicated a man simply because they didn't understand or control how God was working in his life. And Jesus went to him to talk about spiritual matters. The point is this, he could have taken a more respected, a more a safe approach, but he didn't. Think about the throngs of people that came to Jesus over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. The Bible uses the word multitudes. It talks about those literal thousands of people who followed after him. Do you think for one minute that Jesus was fooled by all of those people who were only coming after him because they wanted something? They wanted to be fed. They wanted to be healed. He knew and he welcomed them, and he loved them. He met their needs. He talked to them, and he listened to them. He met their physical needs, and he met their spiritual needs as well. He had compassion for them, and that is what those early followers of Jesus did as well, and they did it so well. They imitated him so well that people noticed and people started calling them little Christs. What a privilege. What does the world see in us? Who do we act like to those who were watching? And believe me, they're watching. They're watching to see how you and I react to those interruptions to those distractions, to those times that things don't turn out the way we thought they were going to, to those disappointments, to those life moments. People are looking to see how we're going to react to them. Is it any different from the way the rest of the world reacts? Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Are you fishing? You can't fish from your living room. You can't fish from the church. You have to go where the fish are. Are you following? A Christian is a Christ follower. Are we following his example? Someone once said the gospel is summed up in two words, come and go. Jesus said, come and follow me. And we come to him and then what? He says, go. 
The end of chapter Mark, go into all the world. The end of the chapter of, of Matthew, go and teach all nations. Toward the end of Luke's gospel, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. The late Andre Crouch, gospel singer and songwriter, used to sing this song, tell them. Even if they don't believe you, just tell them. Even if they don't receive you, please tell them for me. Tell them for me that I love them and I came to let them know. Tell them when it seems you are forsaken. Tell them when it seems your earth is shaken. Please tell them for me and I came to let them know. Tell that lonely man who walks the cold streets all alone. Tell that crying child who has no home. Tell those hungry people lost and in despair. They don't even know that I care. Tell them on the streets and on the highways. Tell them on the byways. Tell them that I can mend the brokenhearted, restore the ones who have parted. And I came to let them know. Please tell them for me. Jesus said we are to compel people to come in. I don't know if it's still around or not. Several years ago, when we first came back to Florida, there was a car dealership in a neighboring county, and I'm not promoting their business or their line of cars, but I liked their slogan. They used to say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. We need to be doing whatever it takes to compel people to come to Jesus. What we don't need is to be like the little boy whose mother told him one Sunday morning, you need to get dressed, we're going to church. And he said, I ain't going. <laughs> so mom decided she was going to use this as a teachable moment to give him some instruction about his poor grammar. And she said, no, honey, I want you to listen very carefully. You are not going. I am not going. We are not going. Do you understand? And he said, yes, ma'am, sounds like ain't nobody going. <laughs> I don't think there is a verse of Scripture that compels lost people to come to church. Luke 14, 29 says, we are to compel them to come in. Does that mean we force them? To me, compelling them means that we force them to want to be here. We're so contagious in a good way that people have to have what we have. Without compromising the truths of God's word, and that's important, that's my first qualifier, without compromising the truth of God's word, we must make our churches today the kinds of places that people are drawn to. We need to be searching for ways, and I'm going to give you a long list. We need to be searching for ways to do that through outreach, through recreation, through Bible study, through small groups, through music, through missions, through life-changing worship, through age group ministries, through discipleship. 
through Christian education, support groups, social ministries, evangelism. Every church, regardless of size or circumstance, needs to be exploring every one of these areas and more. And you know what's coming next because you've heard me say it. Every Christian, regardless of age or circumstance, needs to be exploring every one of these areas and more to find our place in the work of God's kingdom. We need to be living the kind of lives that cause people to rush to us saying, I don't know what it is, but I want what you have. We need to be living up to the name that has been given to us. Let's look at what's happened when those first century Christians, those little Christs, were imitating their Lord Jesus. Number four, the results. Verse 21 says, the Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand, interesting phrase. The Lord's hand is synonymous throughout Scripture with a lot of things. It's used in Scripture to refer to God's might, God's leadership, God's provision, God's protection, God's power, God's success. Do you see all the things those little Christs had when they were faithful to him? Here's your homework today. In fact, I'm going to give you a choice today. I don't think I've done this before. I'm going to give you a choice of homework assignments. I'm going to give you one right now. I'll give you one, another one in a few minutes. Use a good concordance or just do an internet search and just jot down this phrase, God's hand. God's hand or hand of God in Scripture. And do a search and see what God brings to you when you start looking up Scriptures on God's hand or hand of God in your life. And then pray for God's hand to be on you in those ways that you discover. I think it'll bless you. If you as an individual want to have all that God promises us through his strength, through his power, through his protection, through his provision, then do what those little Christs did back in the first century. Be and serve like Christ. First Baptist Church of Titusville, if you want to experience God's hand at work, be and serve like Christ. Be intentional about providing Christ-like ministries in such a way that the world cannot help but seeing God at work in this place. That's how we compel them. A man by the name of Charles Sheldon, many years ago, 1897, published a book called In His Steps. Some of you have read it, I know. It's fiction. It's a story about a pastor who challenged his complacent congregation to go for a full year as individuals and as a church asking this question, what would Jesus do? in every situation that came up, in their homes, at work, on their jobs, in their families, at church, when it was committee time, when it was budget time, when it was ministry time, 
Don't do a thing without first praying about and asking the question, what would Jesus do? And it revolutionized their church. Now, it was written in 1897. So, yes, it's dated in its setting and in its language, but it is still a very powerful book. I very highly recommend it to you. It has sold more than 50 million copies in his steps by Charles Sheldon. I understand one of his grandsons wrote an updated version of it some years later. There have been movies about it. There have been plays about it. The WWJD trend came as a result of that movement. And we still see it today. Occasionally, you'll see bumper stickers and bracelets and t-shirts that WWJD, what would Jesus do? But you know what? It has to be more than just a catchy little slogan. When we get serious about bearing the name of Jesus, some people are not going to understand. They might even make fun of us the way they did years ago with their name calling. But what an honor. And something will happen. Verse 21 says that God's hand will prevail. Claim the message of verse 21 today and see what happens in your life. And also, look at the rest of verse 21 and see what else happened for the cause of Christ. What does it say? A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The very same thing is reaffirmed a few verses later, verse 24, again in verse 26. Look at it. When the Jerusalem church heard about those great and wonderful things that God was doing in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to go and shepherd the church there. Verse 23, Barnabas encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And then look what happened. The very next verse, 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Keep following it. Verse 25. Barnabas goes and seeks out Paul and brings him to Antioch. And together they taught the people for a year. What does verse 26 say? They taught great numbers of people. Verse 21, 24, and 26 all agree. Not just the faithful few. Not just a small percentage. Not a dwindling crowd. Not a dying or declining church. But great numbers of people responded when they were challenged to remain true to God with all their hearts. God will bless when his people are true to him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 1 Samuel 12, verse 20, serve the Lord with all your heart. Same chapter, verse 24, serve faithfully with all your heart. Is that not what Jesus taught us as well? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Do you see how it keeps coming back to Jesus? He's the pattern. For our lives. He is the pattern for First Baptist Church of Titusville. 
Here's your second choice of homework assignment. Not only do some research on that hand of God reference, but also jot this down, whole heart scripture. Whole heart scripture or wholehearted devotion. Do an internet search and compile a list of the scripture passages on whole heart or wholehearted devotion and spend some time. I've done it before. It will bless your life. And so we come to number five today. Are you honoring the one after whom you were named? Family came home from church one Sunday. And while mom was getting Sunday dinner ready, little fella jumped up in his dad's lap and was telling him about Sunday school and children's church that day. And he asked his dad, Daddy, what's a Christian? What's a Christian? And so dad started talking to him about sin and about salvation and about repentance and about confession and about what being a Christian meant. But he was struck silent when his little boy said, Daddy, have I ever seen one? Have the people on your street ever seen a Christian? They've seen lots of good people. That's not what I'm asking you. Have the people on your street ever seen a Christian? Has your beautician or barber ever seen a Christian? Has your mail delivery person or the person at the store that calls you by name every time you go in, have they ever seen a Christian? In recent weeks, both some Sunday morning and some Sunday evening services, I've been calling your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Deuteronomy also has this for us in chapter 10, verse 12. What does the Lord ask of you? What does God want from you? Fear Him. And we know that that means not to be afraid, but it means to reserve that heightened sense of awe and respect for him that we have for no one else. Fear him, obey him, love him, and here it comes. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Baynard Fox gave us these words, I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed his name to bear. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'll take him with me anywhere. I'll tell the world that he's my Savior. No other one could love me so. My life, my all is his forever. And where he leads me, I will go. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have so lovingly adopted us into your family. Thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you that you have given us the right, the privilege of being called your children. It's a privilege to be called a little Christ, but Father, we know also that we must ask your forgiveness because there have been times that we have sought our way instead of your way. 
There have been times that we have failed to honor our Lord and Savior with our very words and actions. And so, Father, may we in these moments here right now be led to examine ourselves and to see those areas where we have not committed ourselves to you completely, fully, and given you wholehearted devotion. Father, help us to seek your will and your way for our lives, our homes, our families, and for this church. Use your spirit to touch lives even now and lead us to be what you have called us and need us to be. Little Christs pointing others to our Lord and Savior in his name. Amen.